we might have a vote in our next meeting for you guys to discipline me out of church, but how kind of boring it is. Like anticlimactic, uh, this, this section in the book of Mark is. Uh, you, you expect some really cool things to happen. Man, it just doesn't. So this first, you know, this first of Passion Week, this first day of Passion Week, the triumphal entry, even the, the title, you know, at the front of the ESV, it's like, I thought there'd be a little bit more. As re, I was reminded, you know, in my expectation and the lack of fulfillment of it, um, I was introduced to C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, at the Seattle Children's Theater. Um, I did, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't remember my parents reading them to me. I definitely did not read them as a younger person. I was too interested in basketball and causing trouble in the neighborhood to really care about uh, children's fantasy books. But I remember this story sitting there as a 20-something-year-old man with my new wife and how unexpected the story was. You know, the story of another world and a lion who comes to take back the rule from the white witch. Now, there's a spoiler alert, so if you haven't read them, I know they haven't been out very long, but if you haven't read them, uh, plug your ears, because I'll spoil it for you. But what was unexpected uh, was, was how emotional it was, I think. How, how emotional I felt when Aslan gave himself up for the traitor, Edmund. I wasn't expecting that, I wasn't expecting a few things. First of all, I wasn't expecting the Seattle Children's Theater to do something so Christian, right? Uh, all of it, though, was so unexpected. It was, it was uh, the king who was bringing his rightful rule back to Narnia through sacrifice. The innocent for the guilty. And I remember thinking, I just, I was, I sat there and wept, and I, I was, I was just thinking, I remember this gave me a metaphor for what I had heard about all my life in Sunday school. You know, it was, it reminded me of the kingdom Jesus was bringing, the kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. A kingdom where those who enter, enter as little children. A kingdom where a king serves his subjects by giving up his life. How unexpected is that? And friends, Jesus is the king. Mark is presenting Jesus as the king, but he's not the king we expect, right? Even the subtitle of our sermon series is the gospel of Mark is the story of the suffering king. And the text before us this morning is telling us, uh, I think is telling us how to worship. It's telling us to worship King Jesus as he is and not as you imagine him to be. I think this text and Davy's text next week is going to tell, are telling us how to worship. And our text this morning is telling us to worship King Jesus, the true king, as he is and not as you imagine him to be. What every one of us has is a worship problem, friends. Jesus came to make that right. And Mark writes about it in chapter 11. He presents Jesus as the true king which juxtaposes our notions of him. So here, before I read the passage, here's the outline we'll be working with. 
the, the first point is like a pre, it's a, it's a pre-point. It's a presupposition to the, to the whole of this text. The eternal king who lived in humilia, humiliation. So the eternal king. Why should we worship him? He's the eternal king who lived in humiliation. Second, he's the prophesied king who confuses us, verses 1 through 6. And then third, he's the savior king who brings a better kingdom, 7 through 11. Now, Mark 11. If you're not there, turn there, scroll there. Hear God's holy word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt. You'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, why worship Jesus? Worship the unexpected Jesus because he's the eternal king who lives in humiliation. He is an eternal king. Now, I said this isn't actually from the text, but the text presupposes this, okay? So I, I think it's important for us to understand. I think one of the reasons we get confused and texts like this are hard is because maybe we don't understand Jesus as king and how it spans through uh, eternity past to when he steps into time and space and then as he is exalted and in glory. So I think just three points under this. Jesus is the eternal king who lives in humiliation. Jesus is the son of God, the eternal son of God, who has always been the ruler. He has coexisted with God. He's of the same essence of God. He, he shares glory and eternity, infinity with him. Jesus is and has always been king. First Timothy 1.17 tells us this explicitly. But something changed. The Godhead didn't change, but something changed, and that is Jesus, according to Philippians 2, came to earth as a servant. The way he emptied himself of his glory was to add on human flesh. Romans tells us he came in the likeness of human flesh. 
in, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't, but in the likeness of flesh. He was a real human being, and he was, he was clothed. His glory was clothed with flesh. So Jesus was king eternally in glory. He comes, he takes on flesh, and now in the, he is in his humiliation. Jesus was humble, but he was humbled, right? But it doesn't take away his kingship. As God, he was always king. You'll see, he was the unexpected king. Galatians tells us at just the right time, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law for the purpose of our salvation so that we might be justified. So Jesus is not only eternally king, he is king in, in time and space, although his kingship looks different. In his humiliation, the Westminster Larger Catechism asked this question. What was the state of Christ's humiliation? The state of Christ's humiliation answer was that low condition where for our sakes he emptied himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and in his birth, life, and after his death until his resurrection. Jesus was eternal king who lived in humiliation. He was humiliated, yet he was still God. It's confusing, right? It was confusing for everyone who saw him. He's, he's still the king. And lastly, his resurrection was the doorway into what Philippians 2 calls him being highly exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning forever, forever enthroned. The resurrection was the doorway into that. And as king, he sits enthroned above, ruling and reigning over everything. He's sovereign over everything. There's nothing in this world that he's not in control of. So, what, what does that look like? I mean, because we, we see the world, right? And, and we see, like, it doesn't always look like Jesus is in control. What's with the pandemic? What's with the death? What's with the wars? What's with the evil? And Jesus is still king, sovereign over all. We do not see him as the, the cause of evil. He cannot, be, he cannot be charged with evil. And yet no evil is outside of his control. And we see in the cross that he can even take evil and use it for the good of people. Jesus is king, exalted above the nations. So that's the presupposition. He's the eternal king who lived in humiliation. But he's also the prophesied king who confuses us. And now we get back into our text. Mark begins to, Mark is like a, you know, for us, Mark is like a little detective. He begins to pile up evidence from the Old Testament that Jesus is king. Like a detective piling up evidence to make an airtight case about, you know, whatever crime has been committed. Mark is like a detective piling up evidence to make an airtight case that Jesus is who he said he is, the son of God and the son of man, the Messiah who is going to bring salvation to all. And how he does that is, quite frankly, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to see at times. And he, he does it through taking elements of, 
uh, of the Old Testament, little echoes of the Old Testament and, and, and putting them, dotting them in his narrative about Jesus. It takes, if we're going to see this, it takes a slowing down, slow way down. Put the, put the slow motion button on and pay attention to, to what Mark is doing and, pre- and how he's presenting Jesus. So the way he does it, what his first line of evidence for us is, is he tells us that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Who is this prophesied king? He's, he's, he's reigning or he's, he's giving directions from the Mount of Olives. The, mount, the, mountain, the mountain place was significant, mountainous places in general, but the, that Mountain of Olives was, was very significant in the timeline of God's people. Uh, and this can be confusing for us, the onlooker and reader, because Jesus doesn't fulfill everything that the Old Testament prophecies tell about him. I shouldn't say he doesn't. He hasn't fulfilled everything yet. But everything is fulfilled in him. Everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus and will ultimately be fulfilled in him. The prophecies foretell, uh, foretell of, uh, of Jesus' work of salvation as well as his, his future kingship on the earth as we, we will see him reigning in person. But the Mount of Olives was an important piece of biblical information telling us that Jesus was the true king. We, we see it first in 2 Samuel 15.30. David... Israel's greatest human king is fleeing Jerusalem. Do you remember why he's fleeing Jerusalem then? He's fleeing from his son Absalom, who is trying to subvert his father's rule. He's he's trying to take the throne from, from daddy David. And David is climbing up the slope of the Mount of Olives, and the text says he's weeping as he ascends says his, his head was covered and he was walking barefoot. And all of the people with him covered their heads and, and went up weeping as they ascended. So here we see the forsaken king finding refuge on the Mount of Olives. The second significant reference for us is, is in Ezekiel. At the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, Ezekiel had a vision in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, it tells that vision was of the glory of God departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives. So now the forsaken God is also on the Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah 14, 4, the Mount of Olives would be the site of final judgment. The, the Son of Man would plant his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it would, this figurative language, it would, it would divide, and, and he would bring judgment on the nations. And God's people believed that this was an, an eminent event for them. And, you know, in Joseph, in his, in, in Josephus, in his uh, writings, in his antiquities, he associated the coming of the Messiah with the Mount of Olives. And Mark seldom mentions names and places, and when he does, we should take note of them and, and, and look them up. So here's the point. The forsaken king, David, finds refuge on the Mount of Olives. 
the forsaken God departs Jerusalem and settles on that same mountain, looking back in grief on that city and the people who had forsaken him. And, and then in Zechariah, the king will return at the site of the final judgment and, and he will meet judgment out. So the forsaken God, king of the universe, must come back to judge. What's going to happen in between? Will anyone be saved? Will, will anyone be saved alive since people have forsaken him? And now in our passage, the son of man is now standing on that same mountain. And he is the answer to that question. Will anyone be saved alive? The son of man now stands on the Mount of Olives, giving directions for his entrance into the very city where he'll be rejected and crucified for his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. As the word came in flesh, we must understand his life to be the fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament. And the, the gospels are, are the retelling of this fulfillment. What was promised in the old is, is kept in the new. And we must worship Jesus as he is presented to us and not as we imagine him to be. We find this difficult, don't we? I, I find it difficult as well to keep it all together. But this is the first line of evidence, that Jesus is the prophesied king. He demands worship as he presents himself. He demands to be worshiped as he presents himself and not as you imagine or I imagine him to be. The second line of evidence is this unridden donkey. Everyone has heard, you know, the, the, a sermon preached about this. But it can be another confusing aspect. What is this donkey all about? Well, Mark actually doesn't call it a donkey. We know it's a donkey from, from Matthew 21 too. It tells us explicitly that Jesus is riding on a donkey. G Genesis 49, 10, and 11, where Jacob is blessing the, his children, the, the 12, when he comes to Judah in verses 10 and 11, he blesses and he announces that the royal line will come from Judah. And he says this, he gives this imagery. He will bind the foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. As we move along in, in, in the storyline of scripture, we come to Zechariah 9 and God's people in Zion and Jerusalem are supposed to be rejoicing because their king is coming to him, coming to them. And he says, as Abekah read, righteous and having salvation. And his mode of entry is a donkey. He doesn't enter on a war horse, which would have symbolized conquering. But Jesus enters righteous and humble on a donkey, which symbolizes peacetime. Kings rode donkeys, but they rode them in peacetime. And here is Jesus coming. He will bring peace through his humility and through his death on a cross. So the last line of evidence that we're piling up to make this airtight case that Jesus is the king prophesied in the Old Testament is this procession. This is mainly uh, what chapter 11, 1 through 11 is about. Jesus is proceeding. He's, he, he, he is coming in as a king. 
Jesus is on this donkey, all, all of the people w- that were well-versed in the Old Testament would have recognized these signs. They would have known that Jesus was the one healing the blind, the lame, the lepers. He was giving life. He, he, was, he was confronting the re- religious establishment and even the Herodians. They would have known all of this. And they would have seen him as, okay, he's the one. He's coming in Jerusalem. He's going to set up his kingdom. And see, even the procession itself is telling us this. It's a, it's a kingly entrance. It's, he's, he rightfully rules this city. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, not so much for the city, but to the temple where worship was supposed to happen. And you can recall in the history of Israel that, that uh, these processionals happened all the time. Second Samuel 6, David comes in, he's bringing the ark back. He's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And you remember the, the scene where he's dancing and, and praising God because God's presence is finally going to dwell back in Jerusalem. And, and his wife chides him and tells him that he, he's making a fool of himself. But he's not. He's proceeding as the rightful king back to Jerusalem. First Kings 1 and Solomon's, when, when Solomon was to be enthroned king, his brother tried to hijack that. And, and uh, Bathsheba goes to David. And what does David say? He says, uh, get Solomon, get the priest Zadok and put Solomon on my donkey and proceed to go into Jerusalem, showing that he was the rightful king coming in. So all these lines of evidence now point to Jesus being the true and actual king. He's the prophesied king, but he confuses us at times. Because we have one view of what a king does, right? They rule in a certain way. And Jesus is, well, Jesus is just making that, all of that upside down, isn't he? His kingdom is an upside down kingdom. But what I want us to notice in in application coming out of this is that the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament brings it all to pass, right? Jesus is the one bringing all of this to pass through his sovereign foreknowledge and his meticulous planning. So here is the true king, King Jesus, who is not just he is a man, but he's not merely a man. He is the God man. And the God-man is sitting on the Mount of Olives, giving directions to his disciples. And if you notice in the text, he gives specific directions. Why does Mark take so much time telling us all of this about, you know, go and tie the donkey, and then they're going to say this, and then you say this? I think it's to show God's sovereign, Jesus' sovereign foreknowledge and meticulous planning, his meticulous providence in every area, and especially this first day of his passion. There's not one thing that Jesus is, in control, is not in control of, including his own death. Your times are in his hands. There's nothing he not only doesn't know, but doesn't meticulously plan. And we are called to worship this one, the one the Bible presents, not the God of our own imagination, he is unexpected and yet worthy of our worship. 
How is it that we worship the God of our own imagination at times and not the God that the Bible presents? Well, you just ask yourself the question, do you worship God so that he will give you what you want? Good grades, a husband, a good job, a better marriage? Or do you worship a God who is more like you? He never offends you. He never corrects you. you, and you God is your co-pilot. And you get along just fine with him, thank you very much, because he is a God of your own imagination. Or maybe you, friend, are weary of worshiping God because you think he's upset with you. All of these, all of these in many more applications tell us that we often worship God according to how we want to worship him and not how he presents himself as the sovereign Lord and providential planner. You know, this is put to the test for us, not only when things are going well, but also in our times of disappointment, when things are not going well. Worshiping the king who is sovereign over everything and who plans meticulously is easier when his plans are good for us, right? When, when, when things are going well. When life is good, but what about when disaster happens? What about when a pandemic hits? What about when death strikes your family? How should we worship then? I think we can worship as Job did. Shall I not give praise to him when times are bad as well as good? He said, naked I came. From my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How should we worship this unexpected Jesus? You know, we can learn from saints of old, too. Has anyone ever heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? Two of you? Three? Okay, good. Right, well, now you've heard of it, so you can't say that again. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, asks this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers this way, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. So by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Friends, this is how we can worship God in life and death. We can pray to the one who presents himself this way. He's not only sovereign, he cares about the very hairs on your head. He not only providentially plans meticulously every moment of your life, he loves the sparrows. And if he loves the sparrows, how much more does he love you? 
worship the unexpected king because he is the eternal king, because he's the prophesied king, and lastly, because he's the savior king who brings a better kingdom. Now here in verses 7 through 11, we, we see the climax of the procession. Their imperfect worshipers are actually worshiping Jesus. Maybe with misconceptions, we don't know all of them, but most likely if they were like the disciples, they had lots of misconceptions, right? They, uh, they didn't know exactly what they were doing or who this one exactly was, do we? We assume like the disciples, they thought he came to set up a physical kingdom. So they're bowing down before him, fully imagining that here's gonna be a confrontation with Rome over taking Jerusalem back. We think that's what they probably thought. But, we, but what we notice is that their worship is biblical. Did you notice what they said? Hosanna. Hosanna is, uh, is a term of praise to God. It's a term of praise to God. It's worshiping God by asking God to save us. So the, the worship is, God, please save us. That's a form of worship. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. All of this is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 <coughs> is uh, something called a Hallel Psalm. It's a Hallelujah Psalm, right? It's a Psalm of praise that was sung on the eve of the Passover. They, they sang it because there was a hint of the new exodus happening here. It's likely the worshipers thought that Jesus was, was going to release the Jewish people from their slavery to the Romans, just like he did from their slavery to Egypt. But Jesus is gonna do something far greater than that. His entrance is telling of a greater kingdom. It's not primarily a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Not through greatness, but through weakness. We've been talking about this, friends. As, as the people of God, our discipleship means we serve one another. We serve our families. We serve our church. We serve our community. And by becoming servant of all is how we become great. And Jesus becomes the servant of all as he, as he, the king, is proceeding through there. He's coming to set up a kingdom that's totally upside down. And friends, they are worshiping, and their worship is biblical, but they have no idea what they're asking for. They, they don't know what they're asking Jesus to bring. They asked for more than they knew. So asking for salvation from political oppression, but they needed salvation from God's wrath on sin. One commentator says this, Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. 
Mark, Mark is warning us that the enthusiasm of the worshipers that are bowing down and putting their cloaks down and the, the palm branches, which were, were symbolizing like the red, rolling out the red carpet for the, the king to come into the city and, and take his rule and take his rightful place. Mark is warning us that that enthusiasm should not be mistaken for faith. Friend, you may have enthusiasm for theological truth. You may have enthusiasm for who you think Jesus is. But you must not mistake it for faith. Mark is telling us what true faith is like. True faith is repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus wholly. Trusting the gospel wholly. Oh, a fruit of that, a fruit that you have, that kind of faith, is that you will worship Jesus rightly. As he's presented in the scripture, and not as you imagine him to be. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, as the writer says, but only at the cross. So non-Christian friend, God has only confessed truly and worshiped truly through Jesus Christ, the crucified king. And he invites you, turn, turn to him and be saved. He promised that anyone who turns to him, he will no wise cast out. He will never, no, never cast you out, he promised. Turn to him and be saved. Christian friend, we must not mistake our enthusiasm for faith or popularity for discipleship. Just thinking of worship, you know, Christian worship, it gets, it gets so confusing, doesn't it, right? When I say, hey, we're going to worship God, what comes to your mind? Hey, let's worship God this morning. Does what, what comes to your mind, is it raised hands singing with tears streaming down your face? That can be a part of worship, but that is not worship. Worship is ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, maybe for some of us, that, that should affect our emotions in certain ways, that it isn't currently. And yet, the emotions themselves are not true worship. Only worshiping God, ascribing glory due his name, Ascribing glory to the Lord who has revealed himself as this eternal king, this prophesied king, this sovereign king, this savior king who's giving up his life as a ransom for me. The true king is a crucified, buried, and risen king. And following him is the way of death and resurrection and eternal life. Friends, the first act of worship is to turn to Christ as your only hope in life and death, to see him as your only salvation, your only hope for salvation. Turn to him and be saved. This is worship. And then as you enter the kingdom and in your discipleship, your life of discipleship is a, is a continual turning to him in faith and repentance. This is, this is what we have. As Christians, this is our worship. You know, at dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, 
Mr. Beaver tells them that Aslan is on the move and he will make things right again. And the children are at the table and they say, oh yes, tell us about Aslan. For, for once again, Lewis writes, the strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? Susan asks. <laughs> Aslan, Beaver says. Aslan, don't you know? When Aslan comes, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus, the true king, is setting all things right. He has brought a new day, friends. And he has done it as an unex in an unexpected way, as the unexpected king. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, for you. The true king gave his life for yours. He met death and death was put to death. The long winter is over, friends. Spring has come in him. Let us worship the true king who's king forever. The king who was prophesied and the savior king who's making all things new. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you and your kindness would help us worship you rightly. God, let us see you as you are. Confess our sin. Turn to you who is our only hope in life and death. God, we, we pray that you would be worshiped rightly from us and, and from others because you deserve it. Father, do all these things for your glory's sake. In Christ Jesus, by your spirit, amen.